There is a sound that echoes through Scripture, from Exodus to Jeremiah to Matthew. The voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Where was God this week? Where was God when they came to a grocery store in Buffalo, New York? Where was God when 13 people were shot and 10 precious black lives were taken? Where was God when they came to a Taiwanese church in Laguna Woods, California? Where was God when six people were shot and a precious Asian life was taken? Where was God when they came to an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas? Where was God when 38 people were shot, two precious teachers, and 19 precious fourth grade children were murdered? Where was God when parents waited all night in a gym to find out their children were dead. Where was God? Has God forsaken us and our country? How long will this go on? How long will this violence terrorize us and our children? How long must we bear this pain in our souls? How long will Leaders offer thoughts and prayers, but no action. How long will we live in despair as if this is the new normal and nothing can be done? Is it truly hopeless? Is there really nothing that we can do? I'm grieving today. I know many of you are grieving too. Many in our country are grieving. And yet in spite of my grief and the anger and the despair that often comes from it, I refuse to believe that there's nothing we can do. On April 28, 1996, a 28-year-old man walked into a cafe in Port Arthur, Australia, pulled out an AR-15 rifle from his duffel bag and started shooting. By the time he was arrested, he'd killed 35 people and wounded 23. Like the U.S., Australia is a former British colony with a rugged individualistic spirit. Hunting, shooting, and guns are popular there. However, within two weeks of the massacre, the government had banned semi-automatic firearms and introduced several other measures, including a buyback program, a centralized registry of gun owners, and a public education campaign about the new laws. One year ago, Australia marked the 25th anniversary of the transformation that occurred in the weeks after that rampage. In the last 25 years, the number of mass shootings has radically declined in Australia. Since Port Arthur, there have only been three. On March 13, 1996, a 43-year-old man entered a primary school in Scotland carrying four legally owned handguns and shot 16 students and a teacher. On December 6, 1989, a 25-year-old man entered a Montreal school 
armed with a semi-automatic rifle, gunned down 14 female students and staff members. In terms of sheer cruelty and wantonness, these shootings rival anything seen in the United States of America. And yet, in both cases, British and Canadian political systems responded decisively. Within a year, Britain's government had banned all handguns. Canada created a 28-day waiting period for the purchase of guns, expanded background checks, a national registration system, and a ban on large-capacity magazines. In recent years, Canada went further, tightening gun laws by banning 1,500 assault-style weapons, including the AR-15. So what's the difference between Australia, Great Britain, Canada, and America? John Cassidy, a columnist for The New Yorker, writes, these countries provide a concrete example to us of how healthy democracies can confront powerful interests and introduce rational policies that clearly benefit all of the country. These success stories, though, also remind us of what a dismal outlier the U.S. remains in terms of gun violence and political will. Even in the face of the most gruesome and abhorrent of all mass shootings, the killing of schoolchildren. The urge to shoot children is not confined to the United States, but other countries have enacted reforms that help turn them into rare, aberrational events rather than everyday occurrences. Is it any wonder, he asks, that the rest of the world considers us mad? From afar, the evidence suggests we are. But up close, however, he contends, the real problem isn't mass insanity. It's a political capture and a system aided by the filibuster that entrenches the status quo and prevents desperately needed reforms. Until we tackle these systemic problems, he says, nothing will change. It's a lie that there's nothing we can do. And we need to begin to train ourselves to stop saying there's nothing we can do. It's not hopeless. There's a whole host of things we can do. The problem is not that we can't do anything. The problem is we won't. It's not an issue of ability. It's an issue of will. And this issue of will is a consequence of a deeply rooted spiritual malady that dates all the way back to the first century, a spiritual problem we find in the reading we heard today from Acts chapter 1. This spiritual disease has lived and grown inside Christianity and the community of Jesus' followers for 2,000 years. It is such a formidable spiritual illness that it had persisted among the disciples even after the crucifixion and resurrection. It was so extreme, in fact, it was the last thing on their minds when Jesus ascended, the last question they ever asked Jesus, the last words they offered to him before he went away from them forever. It's almost as if they learn nothing through all of Jesus' ministry and death because they're still now, before his ascension, asking the wrong things. They're still thirsting for power, even now. At least in the Gospels when the Zebedee brothers, James and John, asked for power, it was for themselves. Grant us to sit at your right and your left in glory, they asked Jesus. But they didn't know what they were asking, we're told. Yet in Acts, the disciples come together as a group, a collective body, to ask Jesus for power over all other people. They're encouraging Jesus to restore sovereignty and offer them political domination. And in their lust for power, 
Willie James Jennings claims the disciples ask the nationalist question. When will we get our chance to rule over the land and become self-determining? And if need be, impose our will on others. All of this would, of course, be good for the world, they suppose. Nationalist desire easily creates a fantasy of resurrection, calling forth a triumphal vision of a nation that rises from death and is filled with conquerors and the powerful. Jennings goes on to say, nationalism is a seductive way of understanding collective existence that infects the way we read the Bible. It is a powerful way of imagining life together because it mimics the desire of God for our full communion with each other. But it is actually communion without God or God simply used as a slogan. However, the love of God exposes our modern nations for what they are, simple fabricated containers for the rich multiplicity of peoples who are beloved creatures of our Creator. The disciples are called by Jesus to reach into this rich multiplicity and like quilters joining beautiful fragments of crop, invite a weaving together of peoples within nations and beyond. Nationalism, though, resists such weaving, preferring instead the logics and technologies of assimilation so they might cover peoples with forms of patriotism and nationalist self-determination that reduce options for life together. Such belief is unbelief, Jennings says, for a Christian, because we know God offers us a new way found in a new life and a joining that brings stories and hope and life together in a shared work of knowing and remembering and testifying. And so we look today at this nationalism that is a power, power and domination over other people. That is what the disciples still long for, and it's the opposite of Jesus' teaching, and the opposite of the church. We're on the 149th day of the year of our Lord, 2022, and there have already been more than 200 mass shootings in our country, which is more than one a day this year. It has been 10 years since Sandy Hook, and here we are again. Nothing has been done. To say this is a public health crisis is a wild understatement. It is a pandemic of violence. And when we ask why this is happening in America and nowhere else, there are many answers provided to that question. It's our freedom. It's our rights. It's the Second Amendment, the NRA, our weak-willed political leaders. But let us make no mistake. The targeting of black lives, the horror of children dying, the pandemic of mass shootings, the absence of political will, the lack of common sense gun regulation is not about freedom or rights. It is about power. And not power for good things, power for life or love or liberation, but pure, unadulterated power over others especially over marginalized and oppressed people. The difference between America and other English-speaking democracies is our history of power and how it lived out through genocide and racial violence. In her book, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment, scholar Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz states, any assessment of gun violence and the Second Amendment in the United States is incomplete without dealing with what guns were for and what that means about their popularity and proliferation today. 
It's the elephant in the room in all of our debates about guns. That, that language in the Second Amendment about militias. Militias, what were militias? Militias were originally invented to invade and occupy native land. And the language of the Second Amendment gave people the constitutional right to form volunteer militias with guns to attack indigenous people and take their land. It also gave slaveholders the ability to create armed slave patrols who would go out and capture runaways. Militias had long existed in the colonies when the Second Amendment was written, and the drafters of the Constitution expected them to continue fulfilling two primary roles, destroying native communities in the armed march to possess the continent and take power over the entire continent, and brutally subjugating the African population. Many have forgotten then that after the Civil War, white Southerners formed volunteer militias under the guise of private rifle clubs, which allowed Confederate combat veterans to quickly mobilize mob violence during Reconstruction. The most famous group to emerge from those militias, of course, was the KKK, whose terrorizing activity was exactly why the Second Amendment was created, for white people to use guns and violence to take property and power from other people. Gun rights in America has always been about power, white power over all other people. That's what the filibuster is also, a tool of white power. Of all the bills that failed because of the filibuster, 50%, half, were about civil rights. During this American experiment, guns and policy have been used by white people to replace other people, to replace indigenous people from the land, to replace Africans from their homes in Africa to labor on plantations, to replace black people in segregated communities with Jim Crow laws and redlining and urban renewal and gentrification, and to replace people of color into the carceral system through unjust policing. And this is why it is such a monstrous lie when white Americans like Tucker Carlson and the Buffalo Shooter claim they're the ones being replaced. The truth is, and we must face this, we, white folks that look like me, are the ones who have always done the replacing. James Baldwin once wrote, white people carry in them a carefully muffled fear that black people long to do to them what has been done to them. Moreover, the history of white people has led them to a fearful and baffling place where they have begun to lose touch with reality, to lose touch that is with themselves. Maybe that's why Charlton Heston stood up at the 129th NRA convention that was hosted right here in Charlotte, North Carolina and said, from my cold, dead hands. That was in our city. Maybe the reason we cling to our guns so tightly is that we are afraid that indigenous people and black people and immigrant people will do to us what we did to them. Maybe the reason we cling to our guns is because we're afraid to lose our power over others, our power to kill and dominate. The very power the disciples asked for in Acts, their last conversation with Jesus, the very power Jesus outright rejected. But we could all look at that power and forget to look at ourselves. The lust for power wasn't the only problem the disciples had in our story this morning. In response to their request for sovereignty, 
and power, Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem where they would be filled with power, but not, not the power to dominate over, but power for life, love, and liberation. The power of the Holy Spirit would be given to them, a force that would give the disciples the ability to become bold and courageous witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus and form a new community where there is neither Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. But as the disciples were watching Jesus be lifted up into the clouds, they started gazing toward heaven, it says. And suddenly two men in robes appeared just like at the resurrection, saying to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up towards heaven? Jesus had just told the disciples what they were supposed to do. But instead of heading out toward Jerusalem and getting to work, they were consumed in spectacle, looking up with their eyes toward heaven when they should have been setting their faces like flint for Jerusalem, their feet on the path back toward the site of crucifixion. And, and when it comes to gun violence, many of us progressive folks, we're actually a lot like the second mistake the disciples made. Unlike those who cling to their guns and their power, we're staring up into the sky, consumed in spectacle, the spectacle of violence, petrified and unable to move, hoping that God or some other metaphysical force from heaven is going to come down and miraculously save us from the scourge of violence that is destroying our nation. Like the disciples, we've been given instructions. We don't need another sermon about gun violence. We know what we're called to do, and yet we stare into the heavens, frozen like stone, consumed in spectacle or despair, thinking that nothing can be done, imagining that someone else is going to do the work for us. In the 1980s, a Buddhist teacher named John Wellwood saw this phenomenon occurring in his own community, and he developed a name for it, spiritual bypassing which he claims is the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep, avoid, or bypass facing the harsh reality of our world, to bypass facing difficult personal situations or systemic injustice, to bypass political problems, unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished tasks, spiritual bypassing. Sound familiar? Ben, we want to hear more spiritual sermons like we used to hear here at the church, some say to me. And all I can think when I hear that is people are being crucified. Children are being crucified. What could be more spiritual than talking about that? What kind of spirituality doesn't talk about that? Many who ask for spiritual sermons are unwittingly admitting they've come to church looking for something to help them bypass reality instead of facing it. Or as Baldwin said, to remain out of touch with reality because reality is too harsh. Wellwood claims, this Buddhist teacher, that when we spiritually bypass, we rationalize a premature transcendence, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we've ever fully faced it. As progressive people, we often sit in self-righteous judgment on those on the other side of the political fence who cling to their guns and power, but we have our own spiritual malady. We're just as guilty looking up into the sky for an escape 
longing to spiritually bypass the reality of our world and the problems we face. We're no different than the disciples. Jesus has left us. No one is coming to save us. We are the ones who've been called and empowered by the Spirit to save ourselves, to change our world, to stand against violence in all of its forms. Where was God this week? God was certainly not with the police standing outside doing nothing. God was not at the NRA convention celebrating death. God was not with political leaders refusing to address gun violence. God was where God always is, with the crucified people of history. God was shopping for groceries in Buffalo. God was in church in California. God was teaching at a school in Texas. God was sitting in a fourth grade classroom. God was filled with bullets. God was dying on the ground. God was being crucified again. And because we follow a crucified God, we too are called, like the disciples were, to go toward Jerusalem, toward the site of crucifixion, not away from it, and to tell the truth about it. We cannot bypass it. If we're followers of the crucified one, we are called to go in solidarity with the crucified, to tell the story of the crucifixion, and to stand against crucifixion in all its forms, even the crucifixions that come with bullets instead of nails. That is the essence of Christian spirituality, which is the only true spirituality that Christians have. The crucifixion of anyone should be a catalyst for us to get our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls fully engaged in the work of justice and peace. But instead, we're often consumed in this spectacle, living in denial and wishful thinking, imagining for some crazy reason that this is not going to happen to us, that we won't be the victims of gun violence, that our children and grandchildren will somehow be spared. How foolish of us. If we continue down this road, none of our children will be spared. None of our grandchildren will be spared. I shouldn't even have to say this because as Christians we should care because it's happening to so many other people but I don't even know what else to say anymore. There's a drought of empathy in our land, a nihilism around this violence and I don't think there's anything new to say about this spiritual curse. Maybe if we could just imagine this happening to our own children and our own grandchildren then we'd stop looking up and do something about it. I'm grieving this morning, but I've refused to give up hope. I'm lamenting this morning, but I refuse to succumb to despair. I'm sad this morning, but I refuse to believe there is nothing we can do. I'm angry this morning, but I know that there is work to be done. I'm frustrated this morning, but I'm convinced there are countless measures that we can take. I'm exhausted this morning, but I refuse to look up and do nothing. Sonia Renee Taylor said this week, we have the answer to solve this collectively. And the answer is about becoming ungovernable. This nation demands that we play along with the violence as a form of social control. It is calling itself a democracy. It's a lie. It's calling itself a place of laws. It's a lie. 
It's calling itself a place of justice. It's a lie. We're living with liars, she said. And the only thing you can do when you're living with liars is yell the truth in their face and refuse to abide by their lies. She said, this is not a message to the shooters or the political obstructionists, but to all those of us who think we're on the right side of history, but who are colluding with inaction and colluding with complacency, who are horrified but won't do anything. This is for us, the people who refuse to get uncomfortable for the purpose of justice. She says, it's time for us to be disruptive. It is time for us, for people in this country to lay down their bodies in front of a building and demand change. It's time, she says, for a mass influx of direct action. It's time to say that the system that does not care for us or our children must change or die. She says the map has already been given to us by our ancestors in the civil rights movement. They've shown us what to do. They've shown us how to make real change. The only thing left for us to do is to do something. Thoughts and prayers aren't going to be enough. They never have been. As Frederick Douglass once said, I prayed for 20 years and I received no answer until I prayed with my feet. It is long past time for us all to scream, to cry, to yell, to tell the truth. Call your senator, give money, vote, join the movement, join an organization, hit the streets, protest, demand change, stand. If you can, stand against the crucifixion that is taking place in our country. Stand in solidarity with the crucified of history. Be disruptive, become ungovernable. Do anything and everything you can. Just don't look up. <laughs>